Episode 83. Is it possible to collaborate with a PBM outside of drug contracting? Today, I speak with Lisa Irwin from the Aventria Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I was speaking with the vice president of a pharmacy chain recently who said that on his desk right now, he's got a bunch of offers from pharmaceutical companies looking to enlist his organization to help deliver better outcomes to patients taking their medications. Why? Because these pharmaceutical companies have been told that their drugs won't get put on formulary unless they can demonstrate better patient outcomes. And they know they won't be able to demonstrate better patient outcomes without some kind of medication management, management that a pharmacy could certainly provide, given the right incentives. The same pressure that is being put on pharma companies by payers and employers is also increasingly being put on PBMs. With more price transparency and a focus on global outcomes and the overall cost of care, the old triple aim, the days are numbered for PBMs to pad contracts and operate in a silo with very little concern over the impact they're having on medical costs. And this is why many PBMs have and, and have had, nothing for nothing, quality departments that are shooting to improve the star ratings of their payer customers and in some cases their own programs. Today I speak with Lisa Irwin, who is my colleague at Aventria Health Group, amongst her other work directly with PBMs, PQA, and others. And we talk about PBMs and quality and why PBMs might be open to collaboration. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Lisa. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk some about PBMs and quality. I am sure that most everyone listening knows what a PBM is, but if there are any rookies out there, what's the 30-second PBM skinny? PBM stands for Pharmacy Benefit Managers, and basically they act as intermediaries between the payer, whoever's paying for that prescription, and the consumer uh, in the healthcare system environment. So, what they do is they process prescriptions for the groups that pay for the drugs. And those could be insurance companies, those could be corporations. And they use the scale because they represent so many of those entities that pay for drugs to negotiate around drug pricing with drug manufacturers and with the pharmacies that are basically front and center with that person waiting for their prescription. That's their role. They act as a switchboard, if you will, between the payer and the person trying to get their prescription. So a little bit beyond the 30 seconds is that if you walk into a pharmacy, it's not necessarily the pharmacy that knows who you are and how much you should pay. It only knows that because the PBMs have given them that information about you. That's how it kind of works. PBMs make money, obviously, off margins, and then they also make some dollars on rebates. I know it's not your main area of specialty, but if we were just going to follow the dollar around the corner here, if I'm a pharma manufacturer 
And I want one of these massive PBMs because we are talking about some very large corporations here. If I want one of these big PBMs to offer my drug to their payer and employer customers, and I go to the PBM as a pharma manufacturer to negotiate a contract, who's paying what? What does that end contract look like? It's really not so much my area from contracting perspective, but in general, what the pharma manufacturer is trying to achieve is access for their drug to somebody once that drug has been prescribed. So what really it's all about is placement on a formulary. And the formulary is really where the choices are made available to both the physician and the patient about what's going to be covered. And the arrangement that's made between the PBM and a pharmaceutical manufacturer can, in some cases, dictate that. And what's a rebate? A rebate is a sum of money that is paid back to the purchaser of a drug once a certain market share or dollar amount of the drug has been purchased. So rebates are generally based on volume purchased of a drug. And they're given back is a way to incentivize, for lack of a better word, continued increase in the market share of a particular drug. To just explore that topic a little bit further, because I think it does pertain to quality and it does get into also the total cost of care. PBMs are getting lower prices because they're promising manufacturer volume in order to get those rebates. You know, so they're negotiating. You could almost look at those rebates as volume discounts in certain respects. But how you get that volume is by funneling as much as possible of drug spend into one to fewer drugs. And how you do that is through formulary exclusions, right? So you eliminate the competitors in a class so that all the business funnels to one drug. But at the same time, formulary exclusion and other kind of PBM gambits to leverage scale to get lower prices, that could really potentially work against quality and it could work against total costs. Ideally, start with the clinical positioning of a drug and whether or not it's equivalent in some way or better in some way than what other drug might be disadvantaged in this arrangement. So really, the discussion starts with the clinical efficacy of a drug. So certainly, you're not going to position favorably on a formulary, a drug for which there's a better, more clinically efficacious alternative. All things being equal, I think all bets are off. But it really does start with the clinical positioning of the drug. To your quality point, however, the quality comes in really from the perspective of once all of these decisions land on the patient and how that is influencing their behavior around taking that drug, whether that's price, whether that's side effects, ease of obtaining the drug, all those things ultimately, yes, land on quality. But The entry point for this discussion really is what is the clinical efficacy of the drug, and that is why PBMs have pharmacy and therapeutics committees that make those decisions and determinations about clinical efficacy. I'm thinking about one example that is commonly cited, which is that AbbVie had a drug which was competing against Harvoni for hep C. 
then the problem with the ABV version is that it was a four pill a day regimen versus Harvoni, which was a one pill a day regimen. And what wound up happening was Express Scripts put the four pack on formulary and excluded Harvoni. And it actually wound up increasing medical costs because patients were not taking. I mean, it's very difficult to be adherent on a four pill a day regimen. So it actually wound up costing more in medical benefits than the savings were in the pharma benefits. And because PBMs are primarily concerned about the pharmaceutical costs, it really didn't impact their bottom line. Who it impacted, it would be the PBM's customers. And I know that historically, that's been a thing. Now we're in a moment of time where total cost of care matters. And people are really beginning to understand that if you're squeezing a balloon, <laughs> that's different. Cost shifting is different than cost savings. And in some cases, cost shifting actually costs more money. What's changing in the way that PBMs are starting to think about things? Or am I making an assumption that's incorrect? No, I mean, I, I don't think you are. I think that PBMs have to orient themselves differently to this exact type of conversation because at the end of the day, I think you said it and I said it, they represent customers. Without the customers, there's no reason to have a PPM. So ultimately, decisions like the one that you just described come back in a negative way on the PBM. And, and customers do have a voice. They don't have to accept everything that the PBM is offering on a wholesale basis. I know that those pushbacks occur between clients and their PBMs around decisions like the one you described, because you're right, the payer would receive the downstream impact, so they may penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of thing, which doesn't play out well in today's quality-driven, pay-for-performance, pay-for-value environment any longer. I could imagine that more informed customers will make that transition happen faster. In other words, in the past, payers or providers did not have the data to really make that pushback. It's very easy to say this drug costs a lot of money, and it's much more difficult to say, okay, well, the incremental cost on the more expensive drug actually reduces total costs. I mean, you need a lot of data in order to figure that out. And now those days are coming where there is that longitudinal patient data, where that information and those insights are becoming to be more readily available. There are several entities out there that are the business of measuring cost of care, as you described, that kind of aggregate all of these variables into a more total picture. And you're right. It really is about, especially I think the middle market smaller health plans, having the resources to get up to speed on where the larger health plans surely have already gotten to the place where they're evaluating this in depth. But I think the whole market is catching up to some of this push and pull relative to, okay, is it just all about the drug cost itself or you know, what are the upstream and downstream implications to those decisions? Yeah. In fact, I just was reading a quote from the National Business Coalition on House. So that's an employer coalition the other day in where they were advising their employer members to, you know, in quotes, base selection criteria for formularies on clinical outcomes to ensure that pharmaceutical costs do not decrease at the expense of rising medical costs. So to your exact right. point, people are cottoning on to this notion. 
Honestly, it's so I I mean, I've been in on the managed care side of this, sitting in formulary meetings. I've been in on the PBM side of this. And historically, there have been a lot of problems because of the siloing of the medical side of the house, if you will, and the pharmacy side of the house. But increasingly, by necessity, those areas are starting to come together. There's more integration of for example, medical and pharmacy claims tell the story about the patient, whereas historically in PBMs, it might have been just the pharmacy claims inferring something about what was happening to the patient, but not nearly a fully informed way. So, yeah, I mean, are we there yet? No, but this is really where we're headed. How are the PBMs getting that medical information? Are they setting up data warehouses to share claims data with their payer and other customers? They are setting up data warehouses to receive, in some cases, medical claims information, ICD-10 now information. And, and that is one of the, the areas where I think PBMs have had to become much smarter in order to be able to give back some of this technology and insight to their clients around uh, what's really happening with these members. So yeah, they're receiving, in some cases, medical claims and integrating them with pharmacy claims, marrying up really diagnosis and drug, if you think about it, looking for trends and increases in in certain medications to perhaps predict maybe a downturn in that member's health. So yeah, all of that is occurring in the PBM space today. You have worked for years in the quality department at various PBMs and and other entities. And I know you worked in a department that was called, and you're going to need to correct me, but it was something like the star ratings group at a PBM. Yeah, it was really the last iteration was was clinical quality. and, And really, what does that mean? It emerged and evolved out of star ratings. So I've been heavily involved in the Med D, Medicare Part D benefit basically since the inception of the benefit in 2005. And it's interesting because my background is really more uh, in geriatrics and long-term care. And when the MedD benefit basically broadened the availability of prescription drug coverage to tens of millions of seniors, I personally have been waiting for the moment where that translated into quality. So initially with Medicare Part D, including in the PBM space, most of the effort, and justifiably so, was around administering the benefit in a compliant way, making sure members got their medications, making sure benefits were set up correctly, all the member protections that were afforded by Medicare Part D benefit. But what really took longer was this whole emphasis on quality and ensuring were these members, yes, they got their drugs, but were they the right drugs? Were they too many drugs, too few drugs? Were they the most cost-effective drugs? So the star ratings kind of give a platform for evaluating how well all of this prescription utilization is working for the member. When you say star ratings, because obviously there are a plentitude of Medicare star ratings, but I know there are three or four which are specifically correlated to 
adherence and drugs. So when we're talking about PBMs and quality star ratings, are we specifically speaking about those three or four star ratings, which are directly drug related? Or are we talking in more general terms? Both. There are, I always uh, like to refer to them as indirect and direct measures that can be impacted by the PBM. One of the star ratings, for example, relates to compliance actions against plans, audits. There's sort of a blended star rating that deals with all of the things that can go bump in the night that plans have to deal with from a compliance perspective. That's a star rating. If you think about the PBM as the entity setting up the member's experience with their drug benefit, If that's done incorrectly, that can lead to a lot of access issues, audit headaches for plans. So PBMs really sit in a central position to impact much more than just the direct medication-related measures. It really, they can impact the whole member experience, which is across many more star ratings than, than just those adherence metrics. The other primary place the PBM kind of owns, if you will, is something called Plan Finder. And Plan Finder is the publicly available website that CMS puts up that tells a member how much they're going to pay for their prescription. CMS measures whether or not that was the price that the member paid. Did it match what was posted on this website? That's the responsibility of the PBM. And when they're not correct, when those things don't align that results in a starring deficiency. Really? Yeah. Because I'm looking at, all right, so I just looked up 2016 plan rating weightings for Part D measures or something like this. And they're labeled with Ds, like DO1, DO2. I, I have to admit, I'm not super familiar with these things, but I see, so D01 is call center, foreign language interpreter. Mm-hmm. O2 is appeals, auto forward, appeals upheld, complaints against yeah. the drug plan, members choosing to leave the plan, yep. beneficiary access, performance yep. problem, drug plan quality improvement, rating of drug plan, getting needed prescription drugs. I see what you're saying here. MPF price accuracy. So that's one of the ones that you were. So it's almost like these, yep. these first 10 are you were calling them compliance. You know, Member com- experience. Member experience. Member uh, the, the auto forward example, that's how often a plan. Now, PBMs don't always handle those calls. They're called uh, coverage determinations. It, it's like if your doctor prescribed a drug and either it wasn't covered on your Medicare Part D formulary or the formulary said you had to try something else first, you could appeal that. You could send a note to, in some cases, the PBM administering that, in some cases, the plan, and they would have a certain amount of time to address your concern. If they did not do that in that amount of time, that went on to an entity that the government said would make that determination. If it too many of those results in a lower star rating. So across the board, there are, there are many, many things that a PBM sits sort of at the nexus of that could really impact star ratings for a plan. That's something that if I'm a payer and I'm evaluating what PBM I want to work with, 
those are things that I need to really keep in mind. The PBM has to demonstrate to me. And the last four or five is the patient taking a high-risk medication. You know, what's their adherence? Like there's two that are specifically, actually three, that are specifically related to adherence, for example. You know, so there, there's ones that might be totally within a PBM sphere, as you're saying, these are the direct measures that a plan better get a PBM that scores highly. But then I'm also assuming that plans might be asking a PBM to help them with adherence for their members Correct. as well. So absolutely. I mean, one example comes to mind where, so if you think about a PBM having the claim documentation in real time, so it's it's literally someone fills a prescription and the PBM knows about that immediately and has that data immediately. but that person doesn't come back in the prescribed amount of time, let's say 30 days later, there's nothing happening. There's no subsequent fill of that prescription. That's a way, let's say it's been 35 days for a prescription that should have lasted 30 days. That's a way that a PBM can not only know that it's late, but potentially take an action to reach out to that person to remind them they're late in filling that prescription and if if they do that, that could potentially impact that adherence measure. If somebody wants to partner with the PBM, one of the things that we are always talking about as we discuss transformation of healthcare or as we discuss entities which are looking to increase their own organizational value, like, for example, a pharma company, or if we're looking at entities that are trying to sell something, i.e. some of the, the startups, What do PBMs need? I mean, there are these huge entities, gigantic entities that always seem to have everything that they need. What's behind the curtain there? What would a PBM really appreciate or or what do they need from any of these stakeholders? I think that PBMs are looking for insights on a number of things. The prevailing wisdom is that they're there to manage drug spend and administer adjudication of a claim, but there is a lot more that that goes on behind the curtain. In my experience, PBMs have been tremendously focused on customer engagement. So just you know, for the very exercise that I just described, how are the PBMs engaging customers to do something? Whether it is get information about their prescription benefit, whether it is filling up a specialty drug in the correct way, whether the adherence programs. So PBMs do spend resources to develop ways to engage the customer through member portals where people can go in and manage their benefit, through pill reminders on iPhones. I mean, there's a number of ways. So to answer your question, I think that there is a need for sharing of best practices around these ideas. I would argue that much of what I just described, you know, pharma probably spends a good amount of the time trying to discuss very same topics and historically just hasn't been necessarily a platform or a way to share these best practices. So that that's kind of one way that comes to mind. I mean, how many uh, websites for pharma do you go on where you see how to get access to drugs? I mean, individually, pharma has kind of set up programs for people taking their drugs. But on a wholesale level, I don't see those ideas necessarily being shared. 
PBMs have a certain amount of knowledge and in some respects, an equal incentive to make sure that appropriate patients are getting the drug that's right for them. So in this respect, their incentives and what they're trying to accomplish is very much in line with, say, a you know, pharmaceutical company, but they're not necessarily working collaborating. You've got the PBM doing one thing, learning certain lessons. You've got the pharma company on a different side of the wall <laughs> doing other things and learning different lessons. Right. I mean, and we started out, you know, this conversation kind of not in certainly my area of expertise, which is rebates and contracting, which is not where I lived at all. But but I am familiar enough to know that's where the predominant conversation occurs today between pharma and PBMs. And I know it's a frustration for pharma that they can't kind of delve into some of these other areas. But if you're always leading with your drug, it makes it difficult to do that. There are other areas in which to be engaged. I think coming in with some unbranded tactics or things that support some of the demands that are being made of PBM customers might uh, create some inroads to have those discussions. That's interesting because just the other day, even, I was talking to a pharma company that is feeling like their best spend is in things which promote their drug. But basically what you're saying is if you're dealing with these large entities like a PBM, for example, that what the value of a pharmaceutical product is, is not necessarily inherently the pill, for example. Not only the pill. I would say, I, I would say it a little differently, maybe not inherently the pill, not only the pill, because there are many valued resources, I think, that could cut across, actually, the therapy itself. Those things are, in particular, you had mentioned the customer engagement arena. So it's going to be the customer engagement wrapped around a therapy that delivers clinical results. Yeah, customer engagement Anything related to quality and outcomes, anything related to adherence, certainly digital strategies that I think more and more PBMs are trying to differentiate themselves in the digital space. Integration of data. I think all of this is occurring in pharma, but there isn't necessarily any kind of collaboration going on in the space. When you say digital, what are you referring to more specifically? I'm referring to app development, member portal type of strategies that most of the pharma companies have. I think those things could be potentially differentiating for PBMs. And I don't, again, I don't know that those conversations necessarily occur. Right. And I'm assuming that also when we're talking about any of these tactics, we're talking about ways in which data and learnings are commingled, not necessarily pharma runs off and makes a siloed anything. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Is there anything else, you know, any learnings that you've had in your storied career, which you think are particularly relevant at this exact moment in time as we transition from an FFS to a value-based payment model? Maybe we'll get into this more another time, but I think one of the trends that I'm experiencing very strongly and that the PBMs sort of sit in the nexus of, again, is this whole reliance on the retail pharmacists or the retail pharmacy channel as a way to drive a lot of the types of priorities that the health plan customers have. I think this is an area to watch. Uh, 
I think that many of the national chains and, and a large number of independents are really trying to understand what they can do to, in a very quantifiable way, drive quality, enhance customer engagement, and increase the uptake of digital technologies, especially by seniors, which as people age into Medicare every single day, people that were 64 yesterday are 65 today, and they're aging into Medicare, and they do know technology. A lot of these trends are occurring in real time, and I'm just really watching the retail pharmacy sector as trying to evaluate whether they're going to rise to the occasion. And if you think about where people spend most of their healthcare time, it is in front of a pharmacist, the average of 12 times a year, certainly a certain age. That's kind of what I'm, I'm really watching and, and looking for right now. Well, I can see why you're watching it. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Just to summarize that point, because I think that is a killer point. You know, if we're, if we're looking at these PBMs who are now being asked to help improve the total cost of care, which basically means they need to figure out how to engage customers and do all the things that you just said. One of the things that never occurred to me is that their connectivity point directly to a customer in some respects are the retail pharmacists. So we're getting into a situation where PBMs can exercise their customer engagement muscle through their direct channel, which is retail pharmacies. They can actually influence the medical side of the equation as well. Oh, absolutely. And oh, by the way, the PBMs own that relationship on behalf of their clients. So they create the networks. They decide, uh, in many cases, who is in and who is out. Retail pharmacy really has to, as I said, kind of rise to the challenge of being able to demonstrate the ability to increase adherence, for example, across a population of patients. And so analytics are going to be very important. Quality-based reimbursement is going to be very important in this space. So these things are happening now, and it's it's just incredibly exciting. But it will create a, a shift, a need for a shift away from just the traditional dispensing role into a much more hands-on approach with members of health plans. How I'm kind of looking at it also is it's a whole new vertical in a sense. You know, we've got payers who are buying providers so that now you've got a provider group that is also a you know, quasi-insurance company. In this particular vertical, you've got a PBM who are also buying pharmacies. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a PBM who is also or has the potential to become a provider in their own right with all these retail clinics that are going on. You know, So you've got a PBM now also becoming closer and closer to a, a provider of medical care. Well, uh, that we should plan for the next discussion because I do think that PBMs are viewing themselves more and more as having an impact on the health of a member. And yes, this is one primary way that that could happen. But all of these programs that are taking place around customer engagement, adherence, quality, all of those are direct avenues to providing care in a sense. So. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Well, with that cliffhanger, let me thank you so much for being on the program today, Lisa. My pleasure. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of 
all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.